Hey, Protagonist listeners, producer Andrew stepping in just to give you a heads up about this episode. Uh, Partway through the episode, we did have some pretty significant technical difficulties and had to make some adjustments and adaptation for our recording system and and setup and everything. And so there is a shift in the audio quality when Joe begins talking through the spoiler-filled synopsis of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Uh, I just wanted to give you that that warning so you're not concerned that anything's up with your headphones when you hear that shift. Uh, that is known to us, and uh, nevertheless, it's it's the nature of recording a podcast. Uh, but we do think that this is a, a great and worthwhile episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing the characters from The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And joining us for the discussion are Norman and Cassandra from Lord of the Rings Minute. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Very glad to have you guys on again. And Andrew, I know this is one of your favorites of The uh, the Lord of the Rings, so are you going to be jumping in a little bit on this discussion? I will. I I think this is my favorite of The Lord of the Rings films. I'm sure it's the one I've seen the most of, but not like, like, like I've seen it. I've seen all of them all the way through, but yeah, I've seen this one the most like repeatedly or chunks of things like that. Norman and Cassandra. I know this might be hard for you to answer seeing as how you have probably come to both love and loathe each of these films differently as you've discussed them minute by minute on your podcast, Lord of the Rings minute. But do you have a favorite of the three films? Yes, it's this one. Or if it's one of the Hobbit films, oh, throw that no, one in there. No, 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 not the Hobbit films. No. Um, <laughs> that was just a little joke. For me, it's just this 100%. Yeah. I um, I believe mine is Return of the King. I don't actually know. I want to, when we're done with finishing Return of the King, I want to go back and watch all three of them and see if Fellowship wins out. But in my heart, it's Return of the King. Okay, watch them with no burden of having to do anything yes, afterwards. Yes. <laughs> Just for entertainment. It's been so long. Right. An age. (laughs) Well, uh, for any listeners who are not familiar, The Two Towers was directed by Peter Jackson, and the script was adapted by Fran Walsh, Philip Aboyans, Stephen Sinclair, and Peter Jackson from J.R.R. Tolkien's novel. And it starred a lot of people. And just among (laughs) the cast, uh, the the characters we're most likely to touch on in this discussion would be Elijah Wood as Frodo, Sean Astin as Samwise, Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn, Ian McKellen as Gandalf, Orlando Bloom as Legolas, John Rhys-Davies as Gimli, Billy Boyd as Pippin, Dominic Monaghan as Merry, and Andy Serkis as Gollum. Though there are also some really interesting characters that I didn't just list off. And the quick synopsis of this film is that it tells the story of several long walks and a couple battles. <laughs> yes. I think that covers everything, right? That's, that's all of it. It's certainly an accurate description, <laughs> but maybe not a detailed one. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Light on the details. It's just a broad, broad sketch there. Um, Norman Cassandra, do you remember when you first saw The Two Towers? Uh, in in theaters in the first few weeks it was in theaters i don't know i didn't see any of these in theaters so um i guess sometime in high school but that was like a long time ago Uh, (laughs) uh andrew do you remember when you first saw it i suspect it was in theaters but i 
I mean, for me, I only really think about Lord of the Rings movies in the extended versions. Mm-hmm. And so that that would be like the day it came out on DVD back when it was like a big deal that the DVDs came out on Tuesdays. Right. That's, that's uh yeah, I think that for, for me, much like Andrew and I'm sure you too as well. Like I, I couldn't tell you what the theatrical release looked like anymore. I only know the extended movie version <laughs> on the DVDs. Yeah. We, we struggle with that. Do you, yeah, when you do the podcast, do you have to like do you identify what's added in, or is it just we're we're just talking about this as the text? It's just the extended version. Um, of I the think DVDs. we try if there is um, like it's it's very clear that this is like an extended scene, um, or if it feels like it it significantly changes the tone of the scene that's been extended. Yeah, yeah, but other like the extendeds are what what it is for me. Right. Even though Peter Jackson's gone back and forth on which version he considers to be the true one. (laughs) My sense among fandom is most people treat the extended version as, as the real one. Yeah. That's, I think that's pretty much the consensus. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, like the core text, the ur text, if you will, you know, it's, um, and it's an interesting situation now because like for streaming platforms like when netflix had them which i don't think they do now did they do the theatrical or the theatrical edition okay now the extended edition this isn't like some dvd extras where they're like okay we're inserting three scenes and it's just like poorly edited in with no music like this feels like the full editing job that would have been in the theatrical release if they'd been allowed to have that Mm -hmm. amount of time like everything is seamless and all the music added so it's not like back in the early days of dvd there were some rush jobs (laughs) to get content out onto dvds that uh that don't really hold up and this definitely holds up as a fully realized vision of uh tolkien's work yeah i'd argue that across the trilogy of extended movies there's only a couple of scenes where it looks out of place largely for costume decisions yeah, there's a couple in this one. Yeah, there's, there's, well, there's one particular in this one that we talked about a lot on the podcast and brought up over and over and over again with Eowyn. Yes. Well, after after we do the summary, maybe we, you, you can circle okay. around to that and uh, <laughs> let our listeners know. Because <laughs> right now, the listeners just think this is a story of a couple walks in, a, a, well, a, several long walks yeah. and a couple battles. Um <laughs> All right, a little bit of trivia. This film was nominated for six Academy Awards. It won two, as we've noted, and I'm sure most listeners are familiar with. It is the second of the trilogy um, from the uh, fantastically successful Lord of the Rings uh, film trilogy. In the U.S., it made $342 million. Worldwide, it made $951 million, and that was against a $94 million budget. And it blew my mind how much... um, how much inflation has happened in all those numbers between when this was released in 2002 versus today that both the total budget it made, like it only made $340 million in the U S that seems small mm-hmm. is one thing, but then also that it made this entire film on $94 million that like feels really for, low for modern blockbusters yeah. now. Yeah. Almost 20 years later, it's like, Ooh, that is a fraction of the budget that a Marvel or a star Wars film, you know, or any of the big tent poles right. of the summer films uh, would be getting. Um, we've noted that there is the uh, the original theatrical release and then the extended edition cut. Uh, the theatrical release 
ran for uh, had a runtime of 179 minutes, and the extended edition has 235 minutes. So it's quite a bit that does get added in. And originally, this was released on December 18th, 2002. I know you have spent an entire... I don't, I don't know how many episodes... Well, I guess it would be around 235 episodes, but maybe a little less if you don't do the full credits. Um, but you've, you've, you've done 200 plus episodes of a podcast going minute by minute discussing the two towers. Is there any trivia that springs to mind before we move on to the plot summary? And it's Vigo, fine if there's nothing. <laughs> Vigo Mortensen broke his toe filming a scene that happens pretty early in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's when he kicks the helmet, right? And he yells yeah. out a scream of rage. Yeah, that, that's not rage. That's pain. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. Emotional pain slash physical pain. It reads as both in the, in the moment. Yeah. That's um, the thing that jumps out to me immediately. Instead of Haldir showing up at Helm's Deep, it was supposed to be Arwen in early drafts. Yep. Um, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. They even filmed sure. some of it. Yeah, yeah. How many episodes of the podcast do we do? Like uh, 225, I think. Two- Is that right? I believe so. I think, it's, I think it's 205. I think we did 205 of Fellowship and 225 for Two Towers. I don't want to look. <laughs> <laughs> it was over 200. And, and I believe I just joined you for somewhere in the, uh, it was in the upper 100 minutes of uh, Return of the King for recording for those yes. minutes. So you're you're well into Return of the King at this point. Yes, almost yeah. done-ish. <laughs> About halfway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we move on to the plot summary, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers or talk about the TV shows we've been watching or books we've been reading. And we also, well, when it's pertinent, we give monthly updates on our fantasy box office game. That hasn't really happened for a few months at this yeah, point. Yeah, imagine All that. The- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That that game has crashed and burned for, for 2020. Um, all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now for the full summary. And if any of you have not seen the extended edition, I recommend you just pause this discussion and go watch it and then come back for the quick recap version I'm about to give. So we see flashbacks of Gandalf falling in his battle with the Balrog in the Mines of Moria from the first movie. Uh, and then we cut to Frodo and Sam who are struggling to make their way to Mordor. Now, the struggles are as much with orienteering as with the burden the ring has put on Frodo. They're not very good at getting from point A to point B. Uh, however, they are able to capture Gollum, who had been stalking them, and Frodo persuades Gollum to act as their guide to the gates of Mordor. Now, we go over to Aragorn, the human, Legolas the elf, and Gimli the dwarf, who are hunting the Orakai who captured the hobbits Merry and Pippin. And I hope that all made sense. Uh, and <laughs> then we see... <laughs> That Theoden, the king of Rohan, has put in, been put into something of a trance by Saruman and Grimma Wormtongue. Now, if you have an advisor named Wormtongue, I would just suggest you be on guard. They may be up to something. In, in your discussions of the Two Towers, is the trance the best way that you found to discuss what's going on with Theoden? Um, yeah, a trance works, like, under a spell. Yeah. A soft possession. <laughs> terminology. So now Theoden's <laughs> nephew, Aomir, Aomir, doesn't trust Wormtongue. So Wormtongue tells the king not to trust Aomir, and Aomir is banished. Aomir gathers men still loyal to the kingdom, and uh, they ride off to ambush uh, any orcs that they find, and they attack the Orakai who had Merry and Pippin. Merry and Pippin escape into a forest during the battle, and now this forest is home to the Ents, who are giant walking, talking trees. 
and uh, they befriend an ent named Treebeard, who sounds remarkably similar to Gimli the dwarf, but we're not going to dwell on that. <laughs> now, Gollum is leading Frodo and Sam to the Black Gate. It is a rather heavily guarded gate, though, so Gollum promises to sneak them into Mordor through a secret route. Sam is very suspicious of this, but Frodo accepts. Aragorn and friends uh, meet Eomir, who tells them that there were no so survivors from the orc camp that they attacked. Uh, Aragorn, uh, Aragorn is uh, very upset uh, about this, because they were trying to get Merry and Pippin back, and they go to the side of the battle, where he's able to track the trail of the hobbits into the forest. And this is one of those, like, amazing, no one could actually do this right, kinds of tracking, where he just looks at the ground and describes exactly what happened after dozens of Orakai were running through here, and horses were trampling. <laughs> they know exactly where the hobbits have gone. Um, it's like straight up Batman. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so they, this uh, smaller group goes into the forest where a wizard confronts them. It is Gandalf, who is now Gandalf the White, who has returned more powerful than before. But the way he appears, he looked like Saruman. Uh, I've come to realize Gandalf has a bit of a dramatic flair about him. (laughs) He likes an entrance very much. And we're going to see it more than once in this film, that he really wants to time things spectacularly. Um... Uh, they travel with Gandalf to go see Theoden, and Gandalf breaks the spell over the king, and Wormtongue is driven out. Theoden, learning of the orc armies that are threatening his people, he orders everyone to retreat to Helm's Deep. Aragorn and friends are not huge fans of this strategy. Gandalf leaves to find uh, Eomir and the loyal soldiers that were riding with him. Eomir's sister, Eowyn, makes eyes at Aragorn a lot as they begin to travel to Helm's Deep. Uh, Gollum is... Understatement. <laughs> Uh, I do sometimes wish Tolkien had differentiated these names just just a touch more, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, Gollum is conflicted. Uh, like when I say Gollum is conflicted, I don't know the best way to describe this, but he is having intense arguments with himself uh, and and very very different versions of himself. Uh, but he is still leading Frodo and Sam. Uh, however, Frodo and Sam are captured by Robin Hood and his merry men. I mean, I'm sorry, they are captured by Faramir and the Rangers and the Fillion. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, Theoden's group, uh, is attacked by orcs. This is the group that was traveling to Helm's Deep, and during the battle, Aragorn is dragged off of a cliff. Presuming him dead, Legolas, Gimli, and Eowyn are all sad. The elves, including Elrond, Arwen, and Galadriel, have a philosophical debate about helping the world of men. Then we see Frodo and Sam realize that Faramir is Boromir's brother. We need to see the Fellowship of the Ring. Faramir would really like to impress his daddy, uh, and the one ring that Frodo is carrying might go a long way to winning his father's love. Side note, no, it would not. Uh, Aragorn <laughs> is alive, everyone. Very exciting. He makes his way to Helm's Deep, and everyone who was sad is now happy, especially Eowyn. Uh, but an army of 10,000 orcs is hot on his trail and about to attack, so the happiness is very temporary. Uh, an army of elves do arrive to help the men of Rohan, so there's a little bit of happiness. Merry and Pippin try to convince Treebeard and the Ents that they need to go to war against Saruman, uh, but the Ents would prefer not to. The Battle of Helm's Deep begins, and there's a lot of very cool, very rainy fighty fight that should be watched for the fight choreography, but it does not translate very well into podcast descriptions, so we're going to move on. Uh, Merry and Pippin are asking Treebeard to take them home by a certain path that reveals to Treebeard the deforestation that Saruman has caused in his quest to build and arm, and arm an army, and Treebeard is outraged and calls the Ents to battle. 
Uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep is not going so great, but at sunrise, Gandalf returns with Eomir and his army. The Battle of Helm's Deep is won. The Ents trap Saruman at his tower. Faramir, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are attacked by a ringwraith, but it, uh, when it's driven off, Sam gives an inspiring monologue uh, that Faramir overhears. And I'm going to go ahead and just read this, because it's really important. Uh, Sam says, It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't know the end, because how could the end happen? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. Too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances for turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. That there's something good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. As Sam gives his speech, we get shots of the aftermath of the Battle of Helm's Deep and of Merry and Pippin and the Ents defeating Saruman. Because you can't hear that Samwise speech and not be moved, Faramir lets them go so that they can complete their quest. The end. For now, yeah, there, there's another one. We'll have you guys back on <laughs> to talk about that one next year, probably. <laughs> so... The Two Towers, as the middle chapter of the trilogy, famously is going to be a little bit darker uh, than many many uh, other chapters of trilogies. Usually your first chapter ends on a moment of triumph, but with like the hint of something foreboding. Second chapter, a lot of things go wrong. And in third chapter, you're able to right the ship. Um, this one does end largely with everyone victorious, though. So it's not quite in that meld, but of the three... Mm-hmm films, it definitely has a darker color palette and I think a more somber tone throughout uh, than what you get in Fellowship or Return of the King. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it also ends with a uh, a really menacing final shot. <laughs> there is that, yes. When adapting this story, the, the book is really separ- separating these two plot, or these plot lines. Uh, it's been over a decade since I've read the book. But they had, they had to try and interweave them a bit more for modern audiences in the film. Do you feel it was handled successfully for the film? Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess technically book three and book four, which are the two towers. Um, like one is just Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry Pippin. And then one is just Sam and Frodo. Yeah. So there's no way you can break up a movie like that it and have it work. Odd. Yes. <laughs> very, very odd. Um, so, no, that, it, I think they did a really good job interweaving everything. However, um, because of this, I think that it's hard to keep track of the timeline and what is happening when. Um, but that's just because I'm picky and we went over the movie minute by minute and we were just like, well, okay, <laughs> when does this happen? Um, yeah, no, it, <laughs> the, the timeline in these movies is confused at minimum and disregarded at work. <laughs> you know, and thinking about some other classic trilogies, I think that happens in the middle chapter more so than other chapters. Like, Empire Strikes Back, how was Luke doing all this training on Dagobah and the amount of time it takes Han to hide in an asteroid field? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's that's what's being intercut right then. And like, when you start to stop and think about the timeline, it doesn't make sense. I think the same thing happens in Last Jedi, uh, where it's like, wait, well, how is Rey training for all this time? <laughs> and they're just on the run from uh, the fleet for for what feels like hours on one one timeline and weeks on another. Yeah, yeah. Just all this unseen time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just uh, but but when the story is being told well, you don't actually stop and worry about that so much. It's when you dissect it minute by minute that it really starts to, to stand out, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Especially lighting and geography and part of the timeline. Oh god, line. that drives you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now this movie made me think about 
the recent animated release Scoob a little bit, and I want to tell you why. Okay. Uh, All right. I have young children, so when Scoob was switched from theatrical release to uh, video on demand release during COVID nineteen quarantine, we, we went ahead and, and, and pulled the trigger on that, and we watched it. And the movie Scoob does something that I think a lot of adaptations of TV shows do, where they take the game that you have that you've watching on TV, and in the film they break them apart, and and then uh, and then they bring them back together in the finale. But for a good chunk of the film, everyone's separate. And they're fighting with each other, and I'm not a huge fan of that. However, in this film, everyone is separate. Uh, they don't even actually all get together at the end of the film. You have to wait for the next film uh, for that to even happen. But it doesn't bother me in this one. And I was thinking about why that I had a different reaction to those two things. And I think what bothers me in the Scoob uh, film is that it's about internal strife that is driving them apart. Like they're bickering, they're arguing, they're angry with each other. And this one is all external obstacles that have separated them. And they're actually desperate to be back together. If they could, they would be uh, together. But there's all these external things. And that is a more palatable breaking apart of the group and then coming together for me uh, from a storytelling perspective. Because when you get the group that you come to know hanging out together, to see them fighting isn't actually all that pleasant. <laughs> right? Right. Talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes, communicate. Um, but for this, like the, the reason we have all the different storylines makes perfect sense uh you know what's happening in this film and why they're separated yeah absolutely like especially at the end the end of fellowship you know big battle everyone gets separated two hobbits are kidnapped one of them dies two hobbits (laughs) try to sneak away one guy dies the other three are trying to save the two kidnapped hobbits Mm -hmm. it all it all lines up good yeah (laughs) and it's good table setting uh for this chapter uh to and i'm sure it must have been odd Filmmaking-wise, to suddenly, like, after Fellowship, where everyone was together, 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 every single day on set, you know, to, to now, okay, you two over here, you over there, you over there, uh, you know, second unit, go go do those shots. Um, it, it certainly had to have been a different experience behind the scenes, but it's, uh, I, I think, a really successful chapter in this epic, uh, and it doesn't feel um, like... Uh, you know, the, the internal tension is, is a problem that's frustrating the audience in any way. Right. The the behind the scenes thing, what's cool about these movies is that they filmed them all as one long filming schedule. Mm-hmm. So they didn't do Fellowship and then Two Towers and then Return of the King. They did it all at once, all scheduled, all mixed up. Okay, because when we're at this location, or, or they knew that they were they had the budget for all three. So they were they were trying to find the best way. To, to position all the pieces on the board. Yeah, it had to be a terrifying task yeah. to try and work out, thinking about I think that. I think it's 18 months <laughs> yeah, is how long they months. were in New Zealand. Yeah, The number of Excel sheets of who had to be where, when, had to be overwhelming right? for someone. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Pro- not Peter Jackson. I'm sure he, he barely no, ever what, looked at it. That's what like a, that's what a, co- like a producer and a, a yeah. assistants do. It's like a, a Barry Osborne and Rick Porras probably did all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a sense Peter Jackson was, uh, show me where I'm supposed to be and I'll tell people what to do. <laughs> That's, yeah. you know, that was what he wanted to do. Not worry about who, you know, how to get everyone there. He just wanted to show up and now direct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what are your feelings about this, uh, this chapter in the Lord of the Rings, uh, saga and, and, um, you know, what is this doing for, uh, we, we can go character by character if you want, but what, what is it doing for the for the characters that we came to know in the first chapter? How are they evolving or changing? And if there's one that you really want to dig into first, we can certainly uh, do that. There's there's so many, so I know it's a little overwhelming. 
Oh, man. So very many. Um, I guess we can start with Frodo and Sam, since they're the main characters, mm-hmm. ostensibly. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> ostensibly. Yeah. Um, well, this this film does also start to highlight Gollum in a in a really strong way, uh, where where he's uh, you know the Andy Serkis interpretation of Smeagol and Gollum is going to be one of the highlights that I remember everyone talking about uh, mm-hmm. when, this, when this film came out, and so it's, it's, that storyline of Frodo and Sam is is also very much a Smeagol Gollum storyline. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gollum Gollum and Smeagol's uh, arc and effect on Frodo and Sam's arc is, I mean, probably of the arcs in the movie, the most, uh, changes the most from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, but at the same time, by the end of the movie, you're left on the edge of Gollum coming like full circle back to being who he was at the start of the movie. But coming yeah, at it from... His nod towards redemption gets gets pulled back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot at play in the whole the the Gollum Smeagol Frodo Sam part of this movie, and it's if you don't buy into that emotional through line with that part of the movie, I think that this whole movie falls apart for a viewer. Yeah, yeah, I can see that because we have Sam who is remaining loyal, but he is distrusting of Gollum and slash Smeagol. Uh, you have Smeagol and Gollum arguing with themselves. You have Frodo, who, again, like, this kind of flies in the face of what I said about Scoop, where it's like, there's no internal pressure, uh, but, like, Frodo's starting to distrust Sam, but you know it's the weight of the ring, and also the manipulation of, of Gollum. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's not an internal, even though it is starting to feel that way, you know it's it's a transformation that's happening because of the corruption of the ring, uh, that he is starting to, to have some distrust of Sam, which is just heartbreaking with, with Sean Astin, whenever Frodo gives him a glare. Like, <laughs> Sean Astin's face acting in those moments. It's like, oh, it's okay. I, I want to give you a hug, Sam, even though you know he gives the best hugs to everyone. <laughs> you, yeah. you want to just go give him a hug right then. The moment where Sam, or, um, is the moment where Frodo pulls the sword on Sam in this movie? Yeah, it's, yes. it's okay. at the climax of their part of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It happens uh, just a few minutes before Sam's speech. It, is it? Like, it's the last event before that was, in their um, part of the movie, I think. Is it in the river? No, it's in Osgiliath. Oh, okay. Oh, because they fight in the river. They argue. They argue, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. at Osgiliath, they kind of get into a fist fight. They take a little bit of a tumble, roll over each other, yes, and Frodo yes, pulls the that's sword. Right, that's right. And then it, it's it's uh, it's me. It's your Sam. Oh. <laughs> it's so sad. But, like, so one of the things that's interesting about this, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast at all. But now I'm now it's in my brain. Is this? I think there's a real motif in this movie compared to Fellowship and Return of dichotomies, just in general, because so many characters have like two really distinct um, parts of how they're portrayed in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like Frodo really has like two sides. Gollum and Smeagol is the clearest example. Yeah, there's two very there's two different Theodens in the movie. We can see Gandalf and Saruman as a dichotomy because Gandalf says he's Saruman as he should have been when he becomes Gandalf the White. There's uh, maybe through the fault of revising the character so much, there's pretty much two Eowyns in the movie. Well, Norman, the two towers. Right. (laughs) But I think there's a real motif of dichotomies like in people. Yeah. In this film. I think think you're onto something there. Um, And I'm sure 
maybe this could discuss somewhere else, but, but as you're starting to describe it, it's, it feels like, like Sandra said at the end, like, well, there's, it's called the two towers. Like the, the two is really a front loaded, uh, theme that we should be thinking about. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that double, doubling or, or the doppelganger versions, uh, of characters, even within themselves sometimes, uh, you know, the Colin Spiegel particularly, mm-hmm. uh, is definitely something that, that's present. Yeah. Even Aragorn is fighting with becoming a different version of himself across this mm-hmm. movie. Oh, that's true. Yeah. He, he's got the two paths laid out and, uh, and, you know, represented by his two potential love interests. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't seem particularly interested in the second one, but <laughs> but it would represent a different path if you yes. went that, that way. Yeah. We're introduced to Boromir's brother, his other half. Yeah. Oh, oh that's so sad. Yeah, and there's definitely two versions of Denethor, the loving father, and the not. Yep. Well, yeah. That's, I mean, because... Well, no, because, like... There's the Denethor that he um, presents, like, from that one scene in the extended edition. There's the Denethor that he presents to, like, the men, like, the the, the soldiers. And then there's the Denethor that's like, no, you need to do this for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and then there's also uh, Faded, right? Uh, super yeah. obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. two, two version there. Oh, Norman, you're on to something. <laughs> even, even Wormtongue, there's a decided line in the movie where his personality shifts. Mm-hmm. When uh, when he sees the army that Saruman has created, Wormtongue changes completely too. And, and even Eowyn, there's the the mating version and the warrior version of, yeah. of Eowyn. Yeah. Uh, Aemir doesn't really have that. Um, Legolas and Gimli don't really. Merry and Pippin don't really. But Merry and Pippin are just a match set, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you're supposed to. I- I can barely keep them straight, and I know that's going to big fans of this. <laughs> yeah, and and Sam doesn't really have it because Sam is a lot more together than most of the than the uh, other so, than the other hobbits. He is given more in this in terms of his negative attitude towards Gollum feels so out of place to the Sam that we had come to know. Yeah, like to to have anyone who is able to get that much of a rise out of him, and we know it's coming out of his. Love and protectiveness for Frodo is, is where this other side of him is coming out. But it's definitely, uh, you know, Sean Axon's able to play a different uh, uh, emotional arc than what we, we have seen previously for Sam. So I guess I guess there is that dichotomy with Sam, too, between mm-hmm. how he treats Frodo and Gollum. Yeah, it's just everywhere in this movie. <laughs> so uh, we, <laughs> before we, we went on that lovely tangent, which I very much enjoyed, we were uh, starting to talk about the, the Sam and Frodo. So what is Frodo's transformation in this film. Like by the third film he's almost a walking zombie. Mm-hmm. So what what are we getting in in this one, uh, from where he begins to where he ends? I think um his is much more subtle because it is spread out over three movies. Um but I think in this one it's you start to see him lose more of his agency to the ring. Yeah. Um, from the start of the movie to the end of it. Like, at the end of the movie, they're still, like, laughing and, and um, telling jokes and stories and stuff. But, like, like you said, by the end of the third movie, he's... Or, by the middle of the third movie, he's, like, a zombie. Yeah, pretty much until the end of the third movie, he's a zombie. Yeah. It, I, and I love um, the... Um, the... 
that that is something that happens to that character, but you have, you have to feel a little for Elijah Wood <laughs> like, yes. for his acting. Yeah. That that has to be done. Like it it makes perfect sense that his character goes on that arc and um well is both a walking zombie and then being a, dra- a drag zombie <laughs> for, for a while in the, in the third. <laughs> yeah, film. literally, uh, but, literally has to be carried to the climax of the movie. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but but his uh, when he was being called on in his performance it was like okay, look very sickly. You look a little too alive. Let's let's tone that down. <laughs> Did you sleep last night? Okay, don't sleep tonight. We're gonna do some more filming tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, do we have a silicon mold of his body to just drag around for a little while? That that should be fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think the the primary feature of of Frodo's character in this movie is paranoia, and it's dragged out from the the couple of times we see it in Fellowship regards to in regards to the ring. In Bree, the way it's framed when we first see Aragorn, and then in Lothlorien, where it's like very dark and moody when everyone's kind of talking about what's going on, and Frodo's clearly paranoid. There's just like it takes those two moments and kind of drags it like that same kind of characterization of Frodo across this whole movie. It's kind of most of what's going on with Frodo. Yeah, and I think that what's so interesting for the viewer is to to feel how that tension is mounting um, with with Sam, but then also, like, if, if, I mean, if you know the stories or, uh, you know, if you, if you can feel what's coming, like his, uh, his kindness towards Gollum is, is going to be key to their success. Uh, you know, in, in the end, uh, the fact that he doesn't let anyone hurt Gollum, well, hurt him too bad <laughs> um, mm-hmm. throughout, uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to have, uh, the finale. And so while the kindness is confusing to Sam and, and troubling, uh, to him, uh, and, and there's, I think Elijah Wood is able to play a lot of layers as to why he is showing the kind of skull. One of which is um, he sees himself uh, going back to the doubling and the doppelgangers. Like he sees himself in Gollum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the well, Frodo's defining characteristic as a hero has nothing to do with things that we traditionally consider heroic acts. It's his empathy. That's the thing that makes Frodo a hero. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly plenty of characters who have the the classic, like, Ernest Hemingway-esque style of, of manliness about them <laughs> to define <laughs> them as heroes. Uh, but but Frodo and, and Sam, for neither of them really are that. And they, like you said, they're the main characters uh, that, that we're following. And I think a lot of the audience's, like, excitement is the battles of Helm Deep and, you know, the, the men of Rohan and, and uh, you know, Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn fighting all the orcs. And it is very exciting filmmaking and impressive, you know, battle choreography. Uh, that happens in all of that, uh, but the 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 heroes of the story are, you know, those that are are being motivated by empathy and love and you know, and yeah, effectiveness. That's what I was gonna <laughs> say. Like Sam, Sam's defining feature, the thing that Sam kind of represents is is love, and whether you want to take that as platonic or romantic is kind of about the subtext you read into his relationship with Frodo. Yeah, but like Sam's thing is is love, and that's what carries him carries him through everything. And Gollum's is fear, and Frodo is able to balance the two of them to get through this movie. Because he can relate to both of them. You guys have really good insights. It's like you have talked about this movie. <laughs> right? It's like we've lived with this movie for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's jump over to one of the other storylines that we have in the film. Let's do Mary and Pippin. Uh, and what we get for them. For me, the, the one of the biggest changes that we see is obviously they're losing some of the happy-go-lucky mischievousness that defined them in the first film, uh, both because of physical and emotional trauma <laughs> that mm-hmm. they 
they're going to experience. Um, but there is definitely a change where um, initially, I think the characters are very reactive, um, you know, and impulsive. Like, oh, this this here is, you know, just something that interests me, I'm going to go do it. Uh, that's something that scares me, I'm going to run away. You know, and that, that's about it. But in their manipulation of Treebeard uh, to coax the ends in the battle against Sar- Saruman, uh, like, they're, they're making plans, uh, and they are also seeing a bigger picture, which is not something I associated with Mary and Pippin <laughs> very much mm-hmm. when I think back on it. But, but in this film, like, they actually are seeing the bigger picture and what needs to happen and guiding um, forces so much larger than themselves uh, in order to ensure the outcome that they desire. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think we've talked about this before, but it's actually, because, um, like, I think Mary grows up a lot um, he grows up more than Pippin does because Pippin's uh, whole thing is is kind of the next movie. Um, mm-hmm. But it is Pippin who suggests that Treebeard take them by um, Isengard and not Mary because I think Mary is just angry about like th- like we're not we're not we're not doing anything to help our friends. Um, like so, I think he's just stuck in in that. So it is uh, Pippin who's like, oh well, maybe we can. Um, Maybe we can turn the tide in our in our favor if we do this. The closer we are to danger. The further we are from harm. <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me, but you are very small. <laughs> I I've always really liked the the Mary and Pippin segment of this film. Mm-hmm. It it is like super different from everything else that's going on. And if you want to follow the timeline, then like they ride on the tree for three days and then they spend <laughs> how many days like waiting for a tree to talk and and so like it's not as cinematic but they keep coming back to him nonetheless and but i think that because it's such a quiet segment and it it is like talking based it it, like it is about the debate that's going on Mm -hmm. they carry a lot of the thematic weight of not not just this film but of the overall story and you get like some of the best like rhetorical moments, and it seems weird to talk about the rhetorical moments in in this you know action packed war film, um, but like sometimes you need those those rhetorical exchanges of Mary saying like, okay, but like this affects the world and you're part of it, aren't you? It's like you like there there isn't a bystander in this sort of situation. You cannot be a bystander. You have to engage in some way. Mm-hmm. You have to address the fact that you are affected by this stuff, and. And I think Mary's, like, his his plea for that and his indignation at the fact that they want to say, like, oh, we'll just weather this like we always do. He's like, no, like, doesn't this affect you? Like, doesn't anything that affects the world affect you? And, like, that is an important message for people to hear. And, and yes, that's part of the thematic stuff. Like, this draws everyone in, like, when you have it in the in the story where, like, you know, Rohan's being drawn in, Gonder's drawn in, the Shire's drawn in, and all this sort of stuff. But you have to have these moments where somebody's, like, actually saying it out loud. Like, maybe sometimes it is important to tell, and not just show. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing that's really interesting about that, particularly with that's Mary and Pippin and the Ents, is so much about the Ents, it feels like transcendentalist literature in a lot of ways, <laughs> where it's, like, the return to nature, uh, the, the power of nature, transcending... Uh, the world around you, mm-hmm. um, but when you, if you go back and read some of like Thoreau and and um, and Emerson, 
Like, there is very much, like, a call to, like, you don't even need to know what's going on in the world around you. It is just what's right here. That That is, like, your world. Like, why read the newspaper? Right, just go hide in the like cabin and don't like, pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, like just transcend all of that. <laughs> uh, and, but this is, like, a, a firm statement against that aspect of transcendentalism, even as, as it is embracing a lot of, uh, like, the nature rhetoric, which, which Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis were both very invested in uh you know writing about nature and the the, the trauma of deforestation and and uh you know the the impact of industrialization like you you see those threads in their fantasy stories in ways that almost makes you sometimes stop and say huh but well, well you know they, they really are digging digging in on this um but i like that the what andrew was saying about like some of these speeches are still like firmly saying like no all of this is interconnected this isn't but like uh, yeah, the trees can't just say, well, we're just going to save ourselves and we'll be fine. It's like, no, <laughs> everything that's happening in the world is of one piece and, and the ripples are going to be felt by everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't remain neutral and, and apolitical in a world where that's happening around you. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they, I mean, they kind of captured into the, the notions like, well, trying to be apolitical is taking a stance of, permitting the atrocity yes you know and yeah. like and that's what they they show him when he walks through the the deforested portion it's like oh well i'm sorry that this is affecting you <laughs> you know like that's that, it's a shame that this war that you're not part of is affecting you mm-hmm. and so they yeah. they you know still go through and illustrate the principle um but and they don't dwell on it like they make it more about the fact that Treebeard is just angry than him dwelling on um, any mistake of judgment from the previous conversation. Yeah, he's, he's just mad. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's a reaction, not a, a like a philosophical change that is in his heart. Mm-hmm. No, but it's a wizard should know better, and then he just screams, and all the ends appear. Those ends were ready. They they were right there. <laughs> yes. Saruman up in his tower hears the bellow, and he's just, oh no, <laughs> what is that? No, he was taking a nap. Right? Wormtongue was probably trying taking to wake him up the whole nap. time. Just <laughs> boss. Wormtongue was probably waving fire over gunpowder. Like, nah, what is this doing over here? <laughs> how, how can fire undo stone? <laughs> this is one of my favorite little moments of the film. Yes. When Saruman <laughs> grabs Wormtongue's hand and moves it away from the bomb. Well, I think that's a, a good transition over to Helm's Deep, because that fire, how can fire undo uh, stone, is going to be uh, part of the Battle of Helm's Deep. So yeah. let's, let's jump over to the, the Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas uh, uh, plot line uh, in, in this film. Um, do you see transformation for these characters in this film, or is that something that's where you need to look back at all three films to really, to really see anything there? Um, Legolas and Gimli don't really change much in this movie. They barely change at all across the three, really. Their their change is gaining respect for each other, which doesn't have a whole lot of like narrative or thematic weight across the movie. Really, it's just a small um, or, relationship that grows together, and like not a lot of like evidence for that transition. I mean, like no. in the previous movie, they hated each other, and at some point in this one, it's like, no, like this is my guy. Well, it's, so in the, <laughs> and, uh, like, in the previous movie, like, no... <laughs> in the in the previous movie, the moment where Legolas gains respect for Gimli. Um, I can't remember if this is in the theatrical. I don't think it is because the gift giving no, thing. It's when they're when they're when they're in the boats after yeah. Mothlorien, and and Gimli's just like, 
Legolas asks Gimli what he got for a gift from Galadriel, and he, like, tells him about, uh, the only thing I asked for was something to remember her by, just a piece of her hair, and she gave me three. And Legolas just kind of smiles to himself, and at that point, from that point forward, Legolas treats Gimli with respect in the movie, in across all three movies, full stop. Mm-hmm. Because that's, but that's like a deep dive lore thing, because Gimli doesn't understand the nature of his request in regards to, like, elven history. <laughs> And why it's such why a big deal he, that Galadriel gave him three hairs. Yeah. It, it's a whole big thing that would take, uh, like, another extra 15 minutes probably to explain. <laughs> really, is there a quick sketch of what this is? Because I don't uh, know this lore uh, here. Oh! A, a super, a, a super bag in the history of the elves uh, <laughs> named Fanner, who made the Silmarils that the Silmarillion is named for, uh, at one point uh, asked Galadriel for three strands of her hair so that he could craft them into jewels. Because uh, he wanted to, like, preserve her beauty. Uh, But she saw it as him lusting for her, so she denied him and did so repeatedly and just always hated the guy. But there's there's way more context for that. Okay. (laughs) So the fact that he was given the hairs is uh, a mark that Legolas understands. Yeah, because it was asked out of just, like, pure, just, like, innocence and just awe awe, of Galadriel, Yeah. yeah. Um, but Aragorn. As, uh, well, I was just going to say, like, the odd couple pairing of Legolas and Ghibli, it, like, it does work, even as much as, like, we're, we're saying, like, ah, like, there's not a whole lot of change there. I, okay, at a surface level, it's fine. So <laughs> I, right. I'm guessing they didn't feel the need to really change up what was working uh, as far as um, a lot of the comedic beats that are going to lighten yeah. the um, yeah. for the film. It's going to come from the interplay of the, this, this like, sitcom-esque odd couple. Yeah, Legolas and Ghibli mostly kind of play for comedy yeah. in the movie. I guess their relationship gets a little more playful in this one than the previous one. Yeah, and then in the third one, it's just, like, solidly respectful, except for just a little bit of banter. Yeah, yeah. There's still lots of banter, though. Yeah, it's, it's I think it's, it's not as intentionally comedic as it is in this one, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. There's no, uh, do you want me to, like... Do you want me to describe it for you? Or shall or I fetch you a box? Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not really quite anything <laughs> yeah, that, at that comedic level in the third movie. Uh, but Legolas is mostly here for exposition contest, at times. Like, yeah, like, that's yeah. most of what Legolas does. Yeah. What do your elf eyes see? <laughs> and then just Aragorn walks out of the walks out of Metacell. It's just like, what do you see? The stars are veiled. Like <laughs> that's the third one. That's in the third one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like Legolas. Legolas is just here to tell people what he sees with his two eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Bless. Or be really weird about ghosts. Like, that's also the that's third also one. That's <laughs> also a thing that Legolas does. Well, and, uh, like, they're careful to give Legolas and Gimli, like, some of the most epic moments during the fight scenes. Yeah. Like, as well. So, uh, that's some of their moments to shine. Uh, in ways that sometimes feel, uh, unrealistic might be the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not sure what. I, th- I thought you. I thought you were going to say questionable in the spirit of the of the text. I don't know yes. what you're talking about. I think that <laughs> Legolas surfing downstairs on a, on the back of a shield is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> X Games infused in a way that does not feel Tolkien inspired. It's <laughs> it's very 1999 when it was filmed. Yes. <laughs> Oh, can you imagine if this had been, like, just a few years later and parkour was a thing? What would Legolas Oh, oh my god! Well, we got that in the Hobbit movies. Oh. <laughs> but that was too late. I completely forgotten about the Hobbit movies. 
like less that literally was not, jumps around on falling rocks. That did not come out in peak like parkour. That's okay. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, but yeah, like Legolas and Gimli really don't have much of a character arc, which is kind of sad. But someone's gonna suffer when there's like nine main characters in the first movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you can't. You can give moments to all your characters, but you maybe can't give a full, like I said, a full character arc. Uh, it's it's kind of impossible for the amount of screen time, even in the extended edition that they have, with that, you know, as big a cast as they have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gandalf also doesn't kind of really have a character arc. It, it's Gandalf the Grey and then Gandalf the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he comes back and then he's just kind of back. Uh, and like you said, a, a little... Uh, bigger, better, you know, more more special effects than before. Yeah, but uh, Aragorn though, we're like right in the middle of his uh, his transition, like his character arc, which between him and Frodo, both of which are stretched out over three movies, Aragorn's feels um, kind of the most stretched out to me in a lot of ways, because uh, Frodo's is all like kind of subtle, like in his head stuff, and Aragorn's is also kind of in his head, but it's also related, like really. Uh, really heavily to certain parts of the way the movies are themed that we kind of just get hit with some of Aragorn's stuff every now and then. Um, like his weird like surreal his, dream uh, in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of his character revelations, for me, didn't, like if I'm going to pick some myths, which I love this film, I think it's a great film, and I can rewatch it pretty much anytime I see it on, I can sit down and watch the whole thing. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah, like when I start to think about some elements, it's like some of the Aragorn character revelations feel shoehorned in. Yeah, and I think I think the the story for Aragorn in this film is like this guy's really tired, and there's a lot of good reasons for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're gonna get some glimpses into that, including that he's ninety years old. Did yeah. I get that number right? Eighty-seven. Uh, Eighty-seven. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so like yes, there's a lot of good reasons for it. But, like, he seems so much more tired than, like, the rest of this crew. It's like, oh, he was tired before he started this journey. <laughs> like, yeah. like, what was going on he for was him? Born and so they're tired. giving us a man who's They're tired. giving us a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of glimpses and everything into that. And, and one of the things I think is, like, maybe an example of it where, okay, we don't really have enough of the story to appreciate this moment is when the elves come and he, and he hugs the leader. I love that moment. And it's like, it's like I, I like the moment, but I'm also like, I don't know anything about their relationship. Is like, is he genuinely happy to see him, or is he just like, oh, you sent reinforcements, thank you, and giving him a hug? Like, it's one of those tired hugs. Like, like if a babysitter comes or a grandparent comes <laughs> to watch the kids when you're really tired, it's like, oh, thank you, um, and like that's what it feels like. He's like, I was so tired, and I was trying to keep it together, but now you're here, and that could take just a little bit of the burden off of me. That's funny. Right, and Haldir just has no idea what to do. Just the very <laughs> like, slow pat on the back. <laughs> Elves don't hug. <laughs> right? It's beneath them. Right. Well, and so, like, it makes me wonder, it's like, is there a lot more context to their relationship? Like, like, it does get Aragorn, like, really thinking, it was like, oh, my friend. Or is it really just like, oh, this is, this is so helpful. Thank you so much. Is there a backstory there? Do you guys know? Um, well, I mean, in the books, Aragorn spent... Um, he spends time in, in, in Lothlorien in, in his youth. Yeah. Um, so it he he almost certainly knows Haldir. He spends time, I mean, I guess ranging is the word, uh, just around <laughs> northern Middle-earth. 
So he has a good relationship with like Elrond's sons, with Galadriel, uh, with people Sarah's in Lothlorien. not appearing in this film. Yeah, Elrond's sons who are not in the movie. <laughs> Just to say, like when I'm saying like some of the backstory, I I actually do like the backstory when um, Awen's like, I heard you fought with my grandfather. Is that what it is? <laughs> like that one works for me, but it's some of the uh, like the monologues from other characters or the dream sequence for me. Uh, it's like okay, this is like the info dump, and you have to get it in somehow. Or this is how they figured out to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also it recontextualizes uh, Aragorn's leaving of Rivendell too. Like when he when he left with the fellowship, it kind of recontextualizes. When he broke up with his thing. girlfriend. Yeah, when he tried to break up with Arwen, and she was just like, "Really?" In the middle of the night, you just want to you just want to walk away, not say anything. <laughs> the boys in here, don't do this in front of the boys. <laughs> but yeah, it, like Aragorn's whole thing in this film is the first time he is kind of forced to be a leader in the narrative. Uh, but only partially. He's still, like, secondary to Theoden, but the movie builds to him being on an equal footing with Theoden in the climax, and it's it's mm-hmm. him on his stepping stones to be king. Ride out with me. Right. Right? Now is the hour we draw swords together. <laughs> well, even, um, like, like, in some ways we see him as, as a leader, but, like, he was always, in, in Fellowship, like, he was pretty subservient to Gandalf. Like, whatever Gandalf was saying, and, and Gandalf-ish being subservient to Frodo. <laughs> kind of like coaxing Frodo to make the right choice. Right. Like, Frodo, I want to listen to you, so say what I want to hear right now. <laughs> and then Frodo yeah, doesn't. He's just like, no, we should go under the mountain. And Gandalf's damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold up here. Let's go up through the mountain. <laughs> uh, but, but because, you know, after Gandalf, uh, you know, uh, dies in the first film, it, it still doesn't feel like Aragorn is... Is like uh like I said like the, the in a kingly leader leader role. Yeah, he's, no. he's not so much like leading as like okay, this is our next destination. Like let's just get there, and then we got to figure things out. But it, but he's not like conversing with people and inspiring much and like motivating. He's not you know doing the leadership stuff where he like he's not having that that conversation Gandalf has with Frodo where like he's talking about Gollum and life and how difficult things are. Like he's not having that conversation. He's just like Lothlorien's over here this way. Yeah. I know where this is. There are friends there. Well, I think, like, I think he's leading in, like, a ranger. Like, I'm going to guide you through these woods, like I've been doing for the past 50 years of my life. And then in this, in Two Towers, he's actually, like, commanding troops and, like, leading his his fellows. Right. Where, like, we start to see inspiration coming from him, which maybe is what, what, maybe that's one of the distinctions we're trying to draw. It's like, he's not... He's not the monologue inspiring of, you know, like the, the St. Christmas Day speech from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from from Henry V or anything like mm-hmm. that. That's not his role at all in Fellowship. And we're starting to see that begin to be a mantle that he's willing to accept in this one and yeah. will fully accept in the, in the next film. And I think I think part of that is, is also conveyed through, like, the fact that they show him having internal thought processes and, and like, internal debate and decision-making processes – because in the first film, when he is just like, this is where we go, this is how we get there, let's go. Like, there's no thinking, no, no processing, and it that's really, like, dehumanizing is not the word I want, but it, it turns him into, like, an object in the story instead of a subject in the story. Well, but before they um, get to Rivendell, it's important to the way they wanted to write Aragorn that he's at an arm's distance from both the protagonist and the the viewer. To try to build some tension into the idea of like who is this guy, 
Not that I think that necessarily works as well as they wanted it to, but it was the point. But then towards the end of that film, and, and a lot more through this film, you see him dealing with things. It's like, okay, should I go here or should I go here? Like, should I be doing this? Should I be trying to influence Theoden? Um, and at the end of the, the first movie, it's the questions of like, okay, here's the ring. Time for my, my trial. You know, and what decision am I making for sticking with Frodo versus protecting the others and sending Frodo on his own? Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, there's more of that, like, thinking and debating and deciding what to do instead of just doing what he's doing. And that's kind of the beginning of the first film is, is like, yeah, we're going to Weathertop. This is how we get there. You, Yeah, Frodo's injured. This is what we find. <laughs> because we're thinking about, like, character arcs in the second movie, like, in Two Towers, but you just brought up um, Aragorn's trial with the ring. At, at Amon Hand at the Climax of Fellowship. I'm now in my in my mind wondering what came first when they were doing the script writing process for these movies. The idea of that trial at Amon Hand for Aragorn or changing Faramir's character from like the pure-hearted, like uncorruptible Faramir of the book to the like morally gray ultimately makes the right decision Faramir in the movie. Because that moment with Aragorn is very much the moment Faramir has with Frodo in the book. Mm-hmm. Wait, so so in the book, and again, it's been at least ten years since I read the book. Uh, they Faramir just is is almost not tempted by the way. He just sends him off. Not at all. He's unaffected by it almost uh, uh, the same way that Tom Bombadil is unaffected by it. It doesn't. <laughs> it's got nothing to play on Faramir. He doesn't. He, he doesn't seem to want for anything that the ring could give him, so it can't tempt him. Mm. Which the is... Faramir in the film, I, I gotta say, is a rich character. Yes. Uh, that I really yeah. like to dig into. In uh, both the relationship with Boromir and certainly with Denethor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Faramir... I really like... I, I really like movie Fer- Faramir as a character. When I first saw these movies, when they first came out, and I was way more invested in the books... I was just like, why did they do my boy so dirty? But <laughs> like, it, it really adds to the narrative of this movie to have Faramir be an obstacle rather than uh, a comfort. Yeah. Well, and uh, speaking of the doubling, again, like uh, the Faramir Boromir, where Boromir was tempted and failed his temptation, but then tried to redeem himself. Faramir is tempted, but is going, you know, is going to let go before it reaches the point that it was born here. Even though he, you know, it's, it's definitely very, very tempted yeah. <laughs> in this. It's not, it's not the pure version of the books. Uh, but, but it is, I think, a deliberate parallel with the Boromir plot from the first film. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely is. Well, I know we're going to be uh, having to wrap up soon. Do you have any favorite moments from the film that you want to make sure we acknowledge in this podcast? I think, or alternatively, any nits to pick that we haven't touched on. <sighs> I mean, uh, we harped on it uh, so much in our own podcast, but there is there is a particular Aowen scene in the extended oh, Lord. that we that we constantly uh, nitpicked on. You know what? Is... Actually, um, rewatching it since um, having some distance from it, it yeah. is not so bad. I still don't like it. But I still don't like it. it. Does it feel worse when you're looking at just the minutes of the scene, like, disassociated from the rest yes, of the Yes, like, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. 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 The, the because they of. love you. Because they love you. Like... <laughs> particular line reading that doesn't uh, sit well. It's, um... <laughs> it also feels... 
counter to a lot of her other development in the movie. Like, it feels... It feels like she's already past that when Aragorn arrives and she decides not to go to him when he's talking to Legolas when he first reappears at Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. And then it just feels like there's two steps back in that scene, which which occurs after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One scene that has always stood out to me where I'm like, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to make of this is when uh, Frodo and Sam fall down the, the hillside by the gates of Mordor. And some of the troops come and walk over and end up standing like two feet away, and they cover themselves just before the troops get there mm-hmm. and to, to appear like a rock. I'm like, what were these troops looking at 30 seconds ago? Like, I needed yeah. a shot of their point of view to understand exactly what tension I was supposed to be feeling. How did they not um, see? <laughs> yeah, because once the tension is revealed uh, or relieved by that, by seeing the shot of them looking like rocks, I'm still left with the wait a second, what? <laughs> what did they look like to them? Because they're magic. I, yeah, they're we, hobbits. They're magic. Uh, and I think that that scene is in the is that one in the theatrical? Or yes, the yeah, yeah, it's in the theatrical. theatrical. Um, it, it just feels like it needed more attention given to it to like really make it land as to what was going on in the whole sequence. It always stood out to me as something that just yeah. doesn't quite work uh, narratively for for what it's the function it's supposed to be serving in the story. Yeah, um, my favorite scene in the whole trilogy is in this movie. Which is ooh, ooh, do share. Uh, which is um, <laughs> Theoden getting armored up before the Battle of Helm's Deep, with like the kind of slow motion camera and the poem "Where's the Horse and the Rider." That that scene has always just been the one that whenever I think of these movies at all, I'm just like, oh man, I just really love that so much because <laughs> there's there's so much going on there because it the the whole movie is about like Theoden's whole character arc is about him dealing with his own like failure as a ruler. And not having any confidence in himself to lead, especially on the field of battle, which is part of what motivates him to retreat because he wishes to be defensive now that he's failed to truly like lead his people. And protect them. Yeah, he needs to protect them first rather than try to be the hero that Gandalf wants him to be. Mm-hmm. And that, that yeah, scene like is that. just so... like It, it just pulls Théoden's whole whole theming together completely and like puts the the stakes of the the stakes of the battle of helms deep and kind of the stakes of everything that's happening across the trilogy into really sharp focus almost right in the middle of the runtime of the trilogy mm-hmm. yeah i like that uh two things i do want to shout out as really well done uh the transformation of Theoden from the uh ensorcelled gibbering idiot to, <laughs> to to the king it's so well done. Like the the, the makeup uh, when when he was uh, you know the the um, the failure of the king, like, you know where he was under control. Mm-hmm. It's just astounding what was done, and the transformation is really remarkable. Um, and hold that that special effect definitely still holds up. Yeah, I don't I don't know how they made that special effect hold up so well. Like it <laughs> should be super hokey to have like the beard retract and the de aging and the 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 skin change and the wrinkles go away. It looks great. Mm-hmm. And then Sam's monologue at the end. Like, it, it, for me, that is probably my favorite scene of the whole trilogy. Uh, it's in, like, like you, it's in this film for me, where it's like, oh, man, that, that like, encapsulates so much of what we're supposed to take away from this film. Uh, and uh, Sean Astin just nails the delivery of that so well. Yeah, I think that's my favorite um, scene, definitely in this movie, is, is Sam's monologue. I don't actually know what my favorite scene in the trilogy is. Is there something well, that, like... Done. 
when someone brings up Lord of the Rings, is there a scene that you tend to just immediately picture? I don't know. <laughs> it all. She visions it all. Have you? Cause, cause right? I just have like a really intense 12 hour flashback. <laughs> <laughs> just staring off to, into space, just replaying the whole movie. <laughs> Um, but but that monologue, like I, I read it out loud, and I certainly was not giving a shot at some performance. But there's a world where that is so cheesy, and, and like, oh, you're really gilding the lily here, Peter Jackson. You know, like like telling the audience exactly what they're supposed to feel, and you're you're stating the theme almost like an Aesop's fable moral. But somehow <laughs> it works so perfectly uh, in this film, and 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 it doesn't feel like you're force feeding depth into a story that doesn't have it. It doesn't feel like you're you're uh, spoon feeding the audience, uh, you know, what they're supposed to take away. It is literally an inspiring moment, uh, you know, in, in the story, which is what, how it's supposed to function. I think it works so well because they gave it to Sam, because Sam is the most like earnest character in these movies, and Sean Astin does such a good job with the reading yeah, of it that it just. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Like I, like I literally think it works because it's Sam. Like no one else could say it. <laughs> I mean, it's important to give those things to the to the everyman. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts on the two towers? And I mean, I guess if listeners really want to hear all your thoughts of the two towers, you have hundreds of episodes. <laughs> yeah, breaking and, and, down. Yes, anything you haven't Over gotten out <laughs> in in what nearly how many hours of. But if it's 200 episodes... Oh, <laughs> Lord, I don't even want to think about that. It'd be over 50 hours, probably getting close to 100 hours. I mean, you guys are, you know, in that 15, 20... Like, you don't usually go into quite 30 minutes. Oh, don't listen to my week. Um, <laughs> sometimes we do. Yeah. yeah. We're pushing some, some of some their, their episode time. <laughs> uh, the episode I just edited was 31 and a half, yeah. I think. Um, I, I feel like Kester but, and I also kind of push the boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, our longest episode is over an hour. It's over an hour, yeah. Yeah, but most. Episodes... I feel like we're gonna beat that one in our next recording session. Cause, we might because it's Aowen again. Yeah, because it's Aowen. <laughs> uh, it's always it's Aowen. It, it's always Aowen. Like the the longest things have been Aowen, uh, Gandalf's fate speech in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably Boromir episodes. Yes. Uh, I love some Denethor of those, too. I, I, was, I was pushing some of those. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you guys go long on Faramir occasionally, too. Yeah. There, oh, there's a, so there's a lot of meat on, on, on those bones in this movie. Yes. In both of these movies. Yeah. The, I don't, I mean, something that we hadn't talked about on the podcast I brought up earlier because I hadn't thought of it like the whole time always, we were recording. There's always going to be something else because of the source material and like the, the, the richness of this world. I feel like there's always going to be something yeah. else, but oh well. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I love the aesthetic of this movie. Yeah. It's like the aesthetic of Rohan and the Ents. Just like, I don't know, the trees coming to life and then just this, this civilization that's almost entirely on horseback but like clearly very like Celtic or Viking inspired. It feels in some ways it feels the most fantasy of the three movies as far as those in particular elements go. But then they give those two kind of most fantastical kind of things, the darkest trappings around them Mm. in the trilogy. Mm -hmm. Oh, I will say that um, some of my favorite pieces of, of movie score ever are in this movie, specifically like the Rohan theme on the, the fiddle um, is so pretty. It just went through my head right when you said it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All the times you see the, the flag waving and the Rohan. Howard Shore is really good at his job. Yeah. I guess uh, we we should probably give one more shout out to Andy Serkis and his Gollum Smeagol monologue with himself. Mm Mm-hmm. 
He should have gotten Oscar for this movie. <laughs> this is when they really started to debate. Could he be nominated? Was that, that was for this movie, right? Yeah, like there was a there was a lot of talk about it. And when you I don't because he wasn't even nominated for this one. I don't believe. And they've largely settled got, on no. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Andy. You will never get an Oscar. Like, we, we, we made which is ridiculous. We made a poor which decision, but we're gonna stick to it. <laughs> Yeah, because he should have gotten an Oscar for this movie. He should have gotten an Oscar, Oscar for, for Planet, Planet of the Apes. Apes. Yeah, <laughs> those are I mean, so good. If it if it makes you all feel better, Kester and I were talking about it because we talk about animated stuff all the time. The only category that deals with animated films is best animated feature. So and, what are you supposed to do? And, 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 like, and maybe they and maybe they do some stuff for score. I mean, a lot of animated movies can get song or score, but like. They don't have anything for animators. They don't have anything for voice yeah. actors. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, they have, they have best visual effects, I guess, which is where a lot of the stuff we, for like Gollum and yeah. Planet of the Apes would kind of fall, I guess. But at the same time, it feels really like it feels too too far short of honoring both the the individual animators that worked on like really specific performances in animation and also the actor that voices those things or in Andy Serkis's case like mocap mm-hmm. because it it's it's incredible what they were able to do in in this movie and then even more so uh, a decade after that or more than a decade after that in the Planet of the Apes movies mm-hmm. where did peter jackson find andy serkis what was he doing before <laughs> because this really set him on a career path <laughs> from, right? from i think he's on. always just kind of been a character actor uh-huh. but never really like broke into anything i think he's in a couple of like romantic comedies like <laughs> e- either right before this or like some or like a little bit after lord of the rings i've never seen any any <laughs> but i i feel like seeing andy circus in a in a romantic comedy movie would be kind of weird to me as the as the lead i don't maybe i'm not sure or like the best friend because like if he's best the friend best i can friend, see that i guess yeah but like as the lead in a romantic, I mean the same way like friend. someone tells me Mark Ruffalo is like the lead <laughs> in a romantic comedy, and I'm just like, really? And Mark Ruffalo is attractive. Yeah, but I just don't see him being that guy in a movie. Yeah, it's that's weird. true. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the career choice that he would have made, but he did. Like he was the the lead in the thing going on thirty, right? The, uh, yeah. But but it does feel like outside of his normal normal choices. Like I want to see Mark Ruffalo doing like I don't know niche indie films and stuff. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or the biggest blockbusters on Earth. One or the other. Right. That, that is your wheelhouse. That's, you know, that's your lane. Don't do, uh, you know, uh, middle-level performing romantic comedy. That's not your lane there, Mark. <laughs> right. Yeah, your your box office rece- receipts should be less than two million or more than a billion. That's what we're looking for from Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, which is also how I feel about Vigo Morrison. <laughs> All right, well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 107, when we talked about The Fellowship of the Rings. Uh, Norman and Cassandra, do you want to plug your show one more time? Sure. Um, so we are from, uh, also Dueling Genre, and we're from Lord of the Rings Minute, where, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, we cover a minute of a movie. Minute of Return of the King, currently. Yep, the extended edition. One minute at a time. And there's a, a fair amount of back catalog. 
Fantasy Party yes. Eagle, Extended yes. Edition Fellowship, and uh, Two Towers. So there are over 500 episodes at this point. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I would recommend that feed. It is a go-to place for some great discussion from Sam Redmond. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but sometimes these words blend together. The names of places and people.